I spent so much time, you know, trying to make my pain okay for other people and, you know, just like make everything be okay and like keep everything peaceful. It's not, you know, like I also deserved to just like exist. Hi, I'm Kavitha Rajagopalan and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and here we are doing what we do week after week, finding the light in the darkness and proving all those naysayers wrong by finding the good out there. You can get more good by following us on Instagram. We are at World Gone Good Podcast. However, will you remember that? Well, I'll repeat it for you. It's at World Gone Good Podcast. Speaking of repeating things, my first play in 19 years goes up in just a month at the Hudson Backstage in LA. Happy birthday, McKenna, is a dark, wrong comedy that will make you look at your own family and say, you know what? My family ain't that bad after all. 12 shows only, beginning March 3rd. Visit hbmtheplay.com for all the info. I'd love to see you there. Again, that's hbmtheplay.com. Okay, so today's episode is part two. Yeah, we did an old school to be continued at the end of our last one. This is actually the first time we've ever had a two-parter. Exciting! Uh, If you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend you go listen to the previous episode to this one and get all caught up. And if you already did that, well, then I should just pipe down and get to it, huh? How dare you? How dare you? Kavi, Kavitha, Rajakopalan, and I have been friends for many years. She continues her good family story right now. We did see a pediatric neurosurgeon when he was like a couple weeks old, you know, I think five weeks old. And it was an amazing visit. The doctor looked at all of his MRIs and all of his files and everything. And he said, you know, I never get to give people good news. And it gives me so much pleasure to tell you that you have a beautiful, healthy, happy baby boy. And just relax, set back, enjoy him, have fun. And then one week later, he got his first infection and never got better. And, you know, two months later, he was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. So, you know, when people tell you things, like you get a lot of, in the medical world, people tell you things like, oh, well, there's a risk of this, but it's not likely, or the probability is low or whatever. I think for us, we have inhabited a world where the rarest possible threats become, you know, the all-consuming reality that defines our whole existence. So, you know, I think by the time Krishna was diagnosed, We kind of went into a mindset, it was almost, we knew how to be that way. We knew how to have a binder and keep track of of illness and monitor meds. Um, So I think immediately when it first kicked off, I was like, okay, you know, I just kind of went into, okay, there's this situation you know, but the doctors are also, I think when you have parents of sick children, they're not always very direct or honest with you. I mean, they'll tell you the facts, 
But, you know, there's so much about transplant and, you know, just blood diseases in general that are just mysteries. And, you know, I think a lot of what they do at that level of science is really kind of like magic and alchemy. I mean, at one point during Krishna's transplant, they they gave him this medication that was meant to reduce a certain type of T cell count before transplant. So he was on high dose chemo for a while. To basically, what happens in transplant is they they just bring you to the brink of death and then bring you back to life. Like they destroy your entire immune system, and then they introduce the new immune system, and it has to grow over time. And it's a tricky process to make sure it grows properly and doesn't you know freak out. So it's very scary. Um, and I don't think there's any way to really know that until you have to do it. You think transplant, you're like, oh, this doesn't work. Let's replace it with another thing. You think, oh, you know, like my uh, my flashlight lost battery. I'll just replace the batteries or, you know, this part is missing in my car. I'll just go and get the new part. But when it comes to human bodies, it's really tricky. And unless you have to go through it, you don't know it. So when the doctor said to me, you know, there's this, he has this rare disease if he doesn't get it cured, he won't survive infancy. But there's a cure, they told us right away. And that cure is likely to succeed. There's all kinds of things here. I trusted the cure. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. But when things start dragging on, when it was two years, three years, four years, you don't know if your kid is ever going to be okay. You don't know if your life is ever going to kind of stabilize. And then you start looking around and you realize that your life is completely different from everybody else. I went out of my way to try and maintain, you know, relationships with old friends and connect with people. But it, you know, increasingly over time became very difficult because my life and the circumstances of my life, of my son's life, of my daughter's life, like my daughter, you know, is seven years old. This is long before the pandemic. She can't have parties. She can't have sleepovers. She can't go to certain things. We can't travel anymore. Like, you know, she constantly has to worry if her brother gets an infection from something she brings home from school, you know, she starts spinning out because she feels such overwhelming shame that she might be responsible for potentially killing her brother. You know, like that is a scar that other kids her age don't know, you know, they don't know what that feels like. So, you know, it's easy for people to be like, oh, well, my kid has anxiety of this and that. But this anxiety is rooted in a very specific experience. There was one day where I had to change, you know, the caps on Krishna had a, a, a central line. And since he was a baby, it was a tube that was coming out of his chest that, that was attached directly to his central artery. And I had to change because of the infection risk of that. I had to change the caps on that tube a couple of times a week. And it was this whole process. I had to create like this sterile space and, you know, wear mask and gloves and like, you know, clean this and that. One day I, I was cleaning the caps and I forgot to clamp the tube. And Leela was at the table doing her like, you know, first grade homework or whatever. And you know, I'm sitting here, I'm like talking to her, uh, we have dinner on the stove, I'm cleaning, I'm over away a little bit, I've created a little like space. And I'm like cleaning his tube. And I forgot to clamp the tube. And so blood starts shooting from his chest, all over the kitchen. And my daughter, who is six years old, is like completely terrified. She's like running out into the hallway, 
screaming, daddy, daddy, what do we do? So those are the kinds of things that you're not prepared for. It's like the initial shock, when the initial shock hits, you get the initial diagnosis, you know, people rally to you, there's a crisis, but it's the ongoing stress of it, the ongoing pressure, the fact that as your life continues on, you continue further and further down this pathway that takes you farther and farther away from everybody else that you know. And, you know, I have had, you know, some, as you know, Stephen, some important friendships end because people just don't have the capacity to hang with you for that road. And I have other people who've stuck by us like you. And it's been, you know, really, really just um, powerful on the back end to see, you know, how much your life changes and how much you have to move through it. So at one point, uh, you know, I was like, oh, well, I guess I should just join a, a support group. And I joined this caregiver support group. And it was amazing at first. There were two other moms there. I suddenly felt like, oh, God, this is this is what it's like to have a conversation and not feel like a complete alien all the time. These people understand my life and my experiences. But now, two years later, one of those children died within one year. And last week, the second surviving child in that support group besides Krishna has gone into hospice. And Krishna is fine. He's living. Like, he's out here. He's going to school. I don't know. It's just, I've realized, like, all traumatic experiences, especially ones that last for a long time, this is going to have a long shadow. You know, we're always going to be um, kind of living with some version of this, the after effects of this. Gratitude will always be tinged with some grief, you know, and, you know, hope will always come with like a little bit of a, a casing of fear. And, you know, I think that's always the way it's going to be. But I think that's also something that happens as you get older. That's what happens when you lose people, when you go through these things. But maybe it just happened in a different way for us. Um, I, you know, I don't know the pain of losing a child. I'll never know that, you know. But, you know, I know the, ch the pain of, of thinking you're going to lose a child. And it's, you know, like I've, I've been through other things in life. Like there's, there's nothing that's been harder and more confusing and more taboo. And especially during the pandemic, I mean, you and I have talked about this. I really feel over the last two or three years, I'm a writer as well. Looking around, I just feel like there's been an overall kind of loss of empathy, certainly in New York. And, you know, to me, I look at it and I see this is very much a kind of a collective trauma response. We lost 50,000 people here over the course of a few months. And there's just been so much fallout from that over the last couple of years. And, you know, I think that has led to a loss of empathy. People just can't connect anymore. Um, I, I wonder how, what that means for us as writers. How do we write about, you know, the, the challenges that we face as a humanity, climate change, rising authoritarianism, you know, all of the violence in our society. How do we deal with that when we can't tell a story and, you know, prompt like an empathy response or a compassion response with each other? So, you know, like us, I think like our experience, I think there's going to be a long shadow from this thing. And I feel now in some way lucky that at least I know from personal experience what that feels like and how to live with that.
I'm sorry, I just really talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what I want. I just ramble on. You know, you talk, you <laughs> No, you don't. It's great. Don't worry. I edit, but also you're fantastic. Listen, you we we talk about being a writer and writers and every classic fairy tale ends with and they lived happily ever after. And that's the thing that I think has traumatized us as a society right now is like, do it do they? Do we live happily ever after? But do you're, they? you're right. But you're having you're having your own happily ever after. So my right. question to you is looking forward into the new year. What is it like for you to just look at it kind of from a, sorry, boring average mom with (laughs) (laughs) boring average kids and boring average Brooklyn having a boring average? I mean, what is it like to look at the new year and go, oh, God, we could actually make some New Year's resolutions that are attainable? And what does that look like looking forward like that? Is it weird to make that shift? Well, I don't think it's been a shift really because I think I think what happens is when you go through a mass tragedy, your brain chemistry changes. So what happened over the last year, because it's been kind of a long transition with Krishna, like we had to slowly taper down all of his meds. We have to start revaccinating him. Pandemic is still going on, flu, RSV, there's all of this stuff. And because he hasn't been exposed to the world, he gets sick a lot. It takes a while. He's in school. He's behind in a lot of ways because he was on this medication that caused his hands to have tremors. He still can't really write very well. So because of that, he's not able to take tests. Like he's still struggling with school. The stakes are not anywhere near the same. The stakes are so much lower. But what that does is anytime there's a challenge with the transition where he gets sick, He has another little rat. He develops because of his um, long history with GBHD. Every time he gets a virus, he gets these very painful rashes over all of his body, these viral rashes. Happens with immune compromised people. He's no longer officially immune compromised, but he's, again, living in the long shadow of this illness. And so every time those things happen, I think it just it triggers this, this, the same feeling. So even though the life is different, life circumstances are different, I will still feel like I'm back in the pediatric ICU watching my child fight to live. You know, like I'll still feel that way. So I think that is what the transition, it's not a sudden shift, like your life circumstances. This is the thing that I'm realizing, like the way we tell stories, we have to start te- start telling them in a more cyclical way. Like they can't just be so linear, you know? A thing doesn't end just because something ends. Like you don't stop grieving because somebody dies, you know? You don't stop worrying because somebody is no longer threatened. Like, you know, you don't, you don't suddenly feel safe because your attacker or your rapist is, you know, dies or is imprisoned or what have you. Like the effects of these things, they shape who you are and they shape what it means to have a relationship, what it means to feel safe, you know, how you talk, how you think, how you react, how you respond, how, and that defines your relationship. So I feel like even though all of us were individually traumatized, Matthew, Leela, you know, obviously Krishna and me, the way that it shaped our behaviors when we were traumatized also completely shaped our relationships. 
and the way we interacted with each other and the dynamics that we have with each other. So that is going to take some time to unpack. Like there was this one point in the hospital, we saw this, the, the, the hospital team at Sloan Kettering is phenomenal in a way, like, especially since we'd been caregivers for two elders for so long, we knew what reality is normally like for people who are caregivers. Like normally with my father, for example, he had such a horrible disease. It was called multiple system atrophy. And he would see all of these different doctors, all of these different specialists and all of the different specialists, you know, every time we'd go to see them, they would just start from scratch. We'd have to tell the whole story. We'd have to explain everything. They weren't monitoring him as a, as a whole. You know, so some of the medications they would give, one specialist would give would actually counteract what the other specialist was trying to do. And it was this really very taxing. Whereas with Sloan Kettering, they work as a team. So they had a team with a nephrologist, an oncodermatologist, a physiatrist, um, a pediatric, uh, you know, an an, uh, oncology eye doctor and a dentist and like all of these specialists, skin specialists, you know, cardiologists you know, all of these folks that were all working together and they shared notes with each other. And on that team, they had a psychiatrist. They also had a pharmacist on that team who was monitoring all of the meds and the interactions between all of the meds for us. It was amazing. I think every hospital should do it. I believe it's probably extremely expensive and difficult to do, but it would make caregivers' lives so much easier, not to mention patients. But um, they had a psychiatrist, and we saw the psychiatrist while Krishna was in the more acute phase of his illness. And she told me once, she said, you know, I was like, well, it's just been hard with this and that. And, And she said, well, just be aware that, you know, when you're in stress and trauma, you, your behavior, you, your behaviors are anxious and your behaviors, you become anxious and your behaviors in anxiety make Matthew depressed. (laughs) And Matthew, when he's dealing with extreme stress, he becomes depressed and his behaviors in depression make you very anxious. So, you know, you're do you're kind of like doing this to each other while it's also being done to you. And I thought that was really helpful to know and just extremely insightful. So I, you know, I think it's just, it's not like there is a sudden shift, you know, there's just a long emerging. It's like, you know, childbirth, like a person isn't just suddenly born. Like there's two weeks of the body preparing to bring another person into the world. And then they call the first three months after a person is born, they call that, you know, the fourth trimester. You know, I think it's like that. Like, I think when you go through a big change, there's this whole process of of giving birth to yourself and to the life that you want and the relationships that you want and just like giving birth to that. And there's a lot of like labor pain (laughs) around that. And then there's a lot of healing and recovery on the other side of that birth of acknowledging that, yes, your kid isn't going to die. And yes, you are where you are, you know? So I think it'll take a little time, but, you know, we're still kind of recovering. Um, We're still navigating the transition. It's really amazing. When I saw you last year and I saw that little boy and I asked him what he wanted to do, like, what do you want to do first? And he said that he wanted trains and planes Mm -hmm. was the first thing he said. Mm -hmm. And you touched on that when you were talking. 
It's such a, it's such a simple, simple thing. Yeah. That we all, I think, sometimes take for granted just our just our ability to get up every morning, right? And like stand up and walk. Yeah. <laughs> and go to the bathroom on our own. And just the littlest of things that we take for granted. Here's a question that I ask a lot of my guests. It'll be the sec the fourth to last question. Don't worry, there's three more after this. <laughs> what would Kavi right now do and say to Kavi of six years ago when you first got the news? What would you tell her if you could go back? Uh, one, I would say you do it, you get it done, you save him, all of you together with your doctors. Um, so, you know, just keep your eyes on the prize and it happens. The other thing I would say is it's not up to you really. Um, this is something I say to people all the time. You know, there's so much, I think a lot of this comes from, frankly, from Christianity, you know, this idea and just growing up in a, in a very Christian country as a non-Christian, I'm sure you can relate to this, like you see it in ways that they don't, you know, you can see it. And, you know, I think there's so much investment in this like salvation narrative, this idea that like, if you believe, if you do, if you follow, if you, even for secular people, this idea that if you do everything right, then you'll have the outcome that you deserve. And it's just not like that. Life is not like that. Like I've seen so many people like it's all entirely out of your control is what I would say. You know, it's not in your control. So just let it go, you know, and also just be kind to yourself. Like you can't, you know, like I spent so much time, you know, trying to make my pain okay for other people and, you know, just like make everything be okay and like keep everything peaceful. It's not, you know, like I also deserved to just like exist and feel sad about sad things and not put in so much effort and, and, and know that ultimately, even if I, you know, showed up and sent gifts and and called and checked in on people that they still wouldn't actually be able to support all the time because ultimately what I was going through was just too painful for all of us and I think it's just important to realize that like sometimes you can't do things a right or wrong way you just have to endure them and get through them the best way you can and focus on the backside. Like I, I saw, I've been seeing a therapist on and off for many, many years for dealing with earlier stuff, including um, my mother-in-law and father's illnesses and all of the pressures that placed on me and Mary or Matthew early, early on. But I also, you know, you know, just was seeing a therapist for earlier traumas. And, you know, I, I remember so many times this conversation that I would have with other people, this idea of like, well, self-care and healing and doing things the right way. You know, you can't heal if you have an open wound. You can't. You can't like expect yourself to, you know, going to the gym, going to therapy, you know, um, getting, you know, taking a sleeping pill so that you sleep well at night, journaling. None of that is going to change the overall architecture of your life 
if you have a sick child. If you have a sick child, no matter how you're living, you're going to be in hell. It's horrible and hellish. Every single day is hell. And you can't make it be any other way. Um, and you just have to give yourself a lot of grace and give yourself grace, give grace to the people around you. One thing I will say of all of this is uh, six years later, I would look back and say, you know, you and Matthew really showed some tremendous courage, not only as parents, but as partners to each other. I know a lot of people's marriages don't survive these kinds of things. Um, this just really brought us a lot closer. I mean, obviously, we still have a lot of our issues. We always will. But, you know, I just, I'm really, really, I, I think, you know, before Krishna was born, there was no way for us to know. There was no way for me to know, you know, just what a phenomenal person I'd been lucky enough to marry. And you just can't know ahead of time. You can't know, you know, if your partner is a person who can really stick by you and stick by themselves and stick it out during these kinds of tragedies. The final three questions that we end every show with, question number one, I'm going to change it up just slightly, but question number one is going to be anything we've already talked about, anything you want to say, who inspires you? Uh, who inspires me? I have to say right now, because my heart is with her so much, the the mom of the other kid who's in hospice, um, she just is so kind and she's enduring such a tragedy you know and i just i don't know if inspiration is even the word but i i look to her and think of her when i think about you know what humans are capable of and the kind of grace i mean honestly we wouldn't even have the caregiver support group if it weren't for her because she was like she's like i'm so overwhelmed by this horrible situation that she became kind of a peer it was like they have this peer network. I did not volunteer to be a peer um, person because I was like, I can't be a peer counselor. I'm a hot mess. <laughs> like, I can't offer any thoughtful advice to anybody. But she said, listen, this situation is so bad. If I don't talk to other parents like this, then I'm going to lose my mind. So she and I connected over that. And then we were like, you know what? Maybe we should create a support group or encourage them to create one. And so then we started advocating for it. And I think for her to be able to do that with everything that was going on in her situation, you know, I think, you know, I'm never going to say again that I was lucky. Like, I think I spent the first couple of years of Krishna's illness, like bludgeoning myself in the face over and over again, saying, oh, I'm so lucky. We got a diagnosis. We have such a great care team. And wow, I was able to stop working and take care. It's not a lucky thing to have a life-threatened child. That's not good luck. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, compared to what their family has been through, like we did have in many ways an easier time of it. And um, I think being able to to see that has been really important. I take a lot of inspiration from her. I've seen, you know, way too many people, you know, lately say things like, you know, use concepts from psychology, like boundaries or, you know, people trauma dumping or toxic dumping or calling people toxic in general, which is everybody's toxic. It's such a horrible, misanthropic way of viewing the world and viewing your relationships. But I've seen so many people just weaponize those kinds of concepts against people who are going through really tough times. 
And I just give her a lot of credit for seeking and for offering and for receiving support. I'm still trying to stay in community with her. You know, um, I know there, there may be a time where she just doesn't want to hear from me anymore or can't deal with it anymore. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I'm just really happy to, to know her and, and to learn with and from her about how to navigate these things. What is your New Year's wish for the world? I wish everyone would take climate change really seriously. I think the amount of tragedy, it's something that concerns children a lot, um, younger people. And I just think the lack of climate action has been really, really troubling. And I think if we if we don't face it, I mean, this is this is part of, of what I've learned from my life lessons, you know, from these experiences with Krishna's illness and, and caregiving others, is that ignoring ignoring a crisis doesn't make it go away. You know, like we, we just have to deal with it. It's going to suck and it's going to be hard and it's not going to make things better dealing with it because ultimately, you know, the climate crisis isn't going to suddenly stop because we suddenly change policies or behave in a different way. But, you know, ultimately we have to deal with it. Um, and I just, I hope we do. I really wish we do. That's my main wish. And the final question, which is not even a question, it's how we end every show. It's an old Shaka Khan Rufus song. Don't sing it. I can't afford to pay for the the licensing fees. But finish this statement. <laughs> T- tell me something good. Well, um, I mean, I think our friendship is so good. I think friendship is good. I think intergenerational friendship is pretty good. I mean... Matthew's mom and your mom were close friends. You and Matthew were friends. And now you're one of my closest friends. And I'm pretty sure that Mila and Hazel are going to be besties. So I'm pretty (laughs) excited about that for us. Oh, man. I can still see uh, your your husband and his brother, Jay, uh, ringing our bell and asking my dad, I mean, how the story goes is they they rang our bell and they had just moved in to this almost totally white neighborhood these two little black kids and they rang our bell and my dad answered the door and jay said you got any kids our age that we can play with and my dad said i think i do steve and i came downstairs and i just went outside oh hi and we just all started playing and that is how life should fucking be my friends <laughs> that is how life should be it should just be that simple and that easy and i adore you and we have had um so many great conversations whether we are in person on the phone or simply texting one another entire two writers don't don't let writers text each other we tell entire like <laughs> novels to each other and <laughs> we're both on our own like i'm telling one story exactly i'm telling like one story you're telling another we're totally following each other commenting on each other oh and then this other thing like all that shit but uh happy happy new year happy 2023 and um i will see you very soon yes me too thank you so much have an awesome new year and i can't wait to hug you in person Thank you, Kavi, for sharing your good and being one of my favorite people ever. Next time, 
on World Gone Good. It was all about being brothers, our life experience, our mission to cure blindness, and our passion to do it, and just the authentic voice that we were speaking in. And uh, we put it out on Facebook, and it just went utterly viral on a, just a, on a, like a random Tuesday. My producer Lisa emails me, and I quote, "It's what she wrote." We have to get these guys on the show, exclamation point, to which I respond in all caps, go get them, exclamation point. And she did. Brad and Brian Manning are two blind brothers, literally, and that's also the name of their company. They offer you this challenge. Would you shop blind? Brad and Brian took their own personal circumstance and turned into something so good. You've seen them already on the Today Show and Ellen And for some foolish reason, they decided now to do our show. I can't wait for you to meet them. Truly two of the funniest guests we've ever, ever had. Until then, be good.